You're listening to The Seventh, Jesus' Words to His Church, a new sermon series by Crosspoint Peachtree City. For more information, please visit us at www.crosspointptc.com. Well, good morning. Thanks for bringing the church into this building this morning. My name is Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here. Thank you, Casey, for thoroughly entertaining us for a few minutes there. We do love kids. We love them so much that we show uh, movie trailers that remind you of the movie Signs or The Sixth Sense before we preach. So um, sorry about that. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and, and uh, let you know that I don't know that you're going to get my A game, which is why the Holy Spirit is so wonderful. Uh, we are less than two days away from a scheduled C-section, and so uh, my wife at any moment could say, we got to go, and we, when she says that, we've got to go. Um, not only that, it's our seven-year anniversary today um, as, a, as a couple, so yeah, you can clap for that. That's, yeah, that's, I'm, I'm encouraged by that. Um, every year that, that we make it is a sign of God's grace, so we're happy about that. Someone said that we should go get a picture by the, the seven uh, symbol today. Um, we may do that. Um, if you're new here, which I think we do have a few new faces in the room, just as a heads up before we even jump in this morning, just want to make you aware, um, we are a, a very young church plant. So we uh, just hit our two-year birthday. Um, we are not the church with grand infrastructure at this point in the game. I just used the analogy, even with a family, just a moment ago. I like to use this analogy. It's kind of like when you try to get a space shuttle off of the ground. You see just a ton of rumble and dust and fire in the beginning. Um, it just takes a lot of energy to actually lift the shuttle off of the ground and get it into the sky so that it can then move forward. And, and that's where I'd say we are. Um, as a young church, we're, we're in the uh, much rubble and dust phase, um, but there's a lot of gospel fire that we see as well. And so it's really a call for all hands on deck. So if you're new here and you're going, how do I engage this? I, I would simply say right now in this summer season that we're in as we're preparing for the fall, I think one of the best things you could do is just uh, on that Connect card that Casey was mentioning, just say, I'm open to grabbing coffee. Um, because that will allow us an opportunity to unpack what we're looking to do as we go into the fall and how you can engage now in the context of where we are better, how you can connect to other people and get to know other people in this young church plant, how you can get your hands dirty, what that even looks like to serve the church in a young church planting context. But we're excited about what God's doing. Jesus is at work in this church and in our city and would love to um, talk with you more about that uh, during the week may not be me grabbing that coffee this week because, like I said, there's a baby coming, but um, sometime soon. We'd love to do that. So I'm going to stop talking now because I'm just babbling this morning. Um, if you have a Bible, you can open up to Revelation chapter 3. We'll be in the first six verses of that particular chapter of the Bible in, in this particular book of the Bible that we've been looking at for uh, what's been a few weeks now, I think we're a little over a month into a new series entitled The Seven, where we've been looking at uh, letters that Jesus, through the Apostle John, wrote to seven first century churches in Asia Minor, in which Jesus commends these churches for some things. He, he corrects them, rebukes them for some things that he sees. He reveals himself in very unique ways to meet them where they are in the midst of their sin, in the midst of their persecution in the midst of the hardship that they're experiencing. And, and so uh, I put this prayer before us as we began this series that I'd love for us to be a church that prays this way in light of the way these letters unfold. Jesus, encourage me in that which is commendable, rebuke me in that which is dishonorable, and above all, help me to see you more and more for who you truly are. So that's our prayer as a church as we work through and continue to finish out this summer series that we've been plowing away at if you look at Revelation chapter 3, the first six verses go like this. And to the angel of the church in Sardis, write this. The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Verse 4. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. 
The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. God, thank you for what you are doing in this church, what you're doing in this community, in the surrounding areas, what you're doing in the city of Atlanta greater, uh, what you're doing uh, through our church, even uh, in the state of Florida, and, and how you're working in the southeast in what we refer to the Bible Belt, but in what many have now referred to as the boneyard of Christianity. And we'll talk about that this morning. Lord, would you help us to see uh, areas of our lives in which uh, you're presenting to us a wake-up call? Would you um, just work uh, where you see dead cells in this church and in our lives uh, by the power of your Holy Spirit to bring life uh, where it's needed uh, for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of your son Jesus? We pray these things by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, so week in and week out, I've attempted to give a little bit of background on, on these cities that we've been taking a look at, um, and, and I want to do the same this morning because I think it, it's helpful, it sets context, it helps us to understand why Jesus is writing the way he's writing, and it helps us to, to then cross the bridge over into our context to apply it to our lives and to our church. So just a few things that you need to know about the city of Sardis. It was a re religiously important city, so they worshipped uh, the Greek god Artemis. They had a huge temple in the city. Not only were they religiously important, but they were also commercially important, economically important, just like the city of Thyatira that we talked about last week. Um, interestingly, Sardis was the five points of Asia Minor. You could call it the little five if you want to, because there was a road leading to Thyatira and Pergamum. There was a second road leading to Smyrna. There was a third road leading to the region of Phrygia. There was a fourth road leading to the city of Philadelphia, which we'll talk about next week. And there was a fifth road leading to the city of Ephesus. And so there, there was a lot of trade and commercialism that came into the city of Sardis and, and went out from the city of Sardis. Sardis was the center of the wool industry. And so they were a leader in making woolen garments, which will matter in a moment. You'll see how that plays into interpreting this very passage there was a river that flowed through the city in which you could pan for gold and actually find it, which is kind of crazy. So people would, would spend their time doing that and becoming wealthy as a result. The first coinage to ever be created in Asia Minor was created in Sardis, that you could say it was the birthplace of modern money, which is kind of crazy. So you have a very wealthy city on the one hand for all intents and purposes, and, and then uh, coupled with that, strangely, in the wake of Nero's persecution around 66 AD, working its way into the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, Jews were dispersed out of the city of Jerusalem and, and had to go to other places. And oddly, a, a great mass of Jews found their way to Sardis, so that there was a heavy population of displaced Jews there. And they were very involved in various businesses in that city. Um, some of them were even members of the city council, so they had gotten very involved in the city. So you, you have wealth meeting Judaism. You have wealth meeting religion. You have wealth meeting moralism. Both of those foster a culture of external appearances, do they not? And we'll see how that plays out in this particular letter and how that plays out for us as a church and as a people in this city momentarily. But let's look at what Jesus says in terms of the way he describes himself. If you look further on into verse 1, we're told that Jesus refers to himself as he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now we need to unpack what that means. Uh, what does it mean when Jesus says he is the one who has the seven spirits. Well, if you go back, if you're looking at your Bible right now, go back a page or two to Revelation chapter 1. We talked about this in the very first week of this series, if you were around then. That if you look at Revelation 1 verses 4 and 5, you get a Trinitarian reference there. It says, grace to you in verse 4 and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. That's the Father. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, that's the Holy Spirit being referenced. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. There's God, the Son. And so uh, the Holy Spirit is referred to in Revelation chapter 1 as the seven spirits who are before the throne of God. If you go back to Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, I talked about this that first week, and I want to reference this verse again because I think it's just helpful to reconnect it or if you're new here, that in Isaiah chapter 11, you, you get this language in reference to the Holy Spirit. It says this, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. That's talking about Jesus. 
It says, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And the spirit, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. If you count all the underlining phrases there, it totals seven. I'm not trying to be um, outlandishly symbolic here. Um, the Holy Spirit throughout the book of Revelation is referred to as a sevenfold spirit of God. And you see right there how the, the various works of the Holy Spirit come together to create a fullness of the Spirit's work. So that Jesus is saying this morning to the church in Sardis, I have the fullness of the Holy Spirit, which I can give you. Now, if you go on, Jesus doesn't just refer to himself as the one who has the, the seven spirits, but he also says, I'm the one who has the seven stars. Again, if you go back to Revelation chapter 1, that big vision that we looked at of Jesus, and if you weren't here, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that, even on the podcast, to get a, a frame of reference for this, this series that we're in. But in that vision of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, it says, in his right hand, verse 16, he held seven stars. And if you skip down to verse 20, it says, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now, I argued that first week of this series that these angels are heavenly messengers who have been entrusted by Jesus with responsibility over the churches, who instrumentally impart heavenly light and salvation to the church. In other words, this is light-bearing imagery. So Jesus is saying to the church in Sardis, I have light which I can give you. Summary. Jesus says to this church, I have the fullness of the Holy Spirit, which I can give you, and I have light, which I can give you. Now, the question is, why does Jesus describe himself in this way? Right? He's, he's described himself very purposefully to every one of these churches based on who they are and what they're going through. Why would he describe himself as the one who has light and the fullness of the Holy Spirit? Why does the church need light? Why does the church in Sardis need the fullness of the Holy Spirit? And the answer we find uh, as we read on in verse 1 that this particular church is dead. This particular church has gone dark. And the scary thing is that the church thinks that she's alive for all intents and purposes. That if you read on, there's a pattern in these letters that we see, and we've seen it week in and week out, that typically before Jesus gets to the rebuke in, in each of these letters, he commends the church for some things. But in this particular letter, there is no commendation. There is no word of encouragement um, if you notice, there's a contrast between this church and other churches. So that if you look at the church in Pergamum, uh, going back to chapter 2, verse 14, the wicked in that church were the minority. So that it says, I have a few things against you, church in Pergamum. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Verse 15, the very next verse of chapter 2, you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Yet the church in Sardis had, had a majority of those who had abandoned the gospel, the godly, were the minority. Look down to verse 4 of this morning's passage. It says, yet you, still, uh, you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. That, uh, this church might be the most problematic that we've seen thus far, and I, I think that she is. So that Jesus moves right past the encouragement to the correction. He says this in verse 1, I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. That According to Jesus, there's a drastic difference between reputation and reality. And, and we're going to talk about the difference between those two. And so I want to tag this from two different angles. I want to look at it corporately, so as the church collectively, when people look in on, on the church uh, in Sardis and when they look in on our church, I want to address that piece of it. And then secondly, I want to address the individual piece of it. For you as people who make up the church, what does it look like to distinguish the difference between reputation and reality? Corporately, if you look at the church in Sardis, if you polled people in the city of Sardis, they would say about the church in Sardis, that church has it going on. Like, that church is on point. My guess would be that they probably had good attendance. They probably had good financial support. They made their numbers every week to make budget. They had a good ministry plan. They were known in the community. This was not a, a persecuted church, strangely. They didn't have to hide underground, which, which makes you wonder how faithful to the gospel were they really. When, when you look at first century Asia Minor, there's a pattern that emerges in which the, the church uh, of Jesus Christ was persecuted in these various areas. But this church was loved by all. Everyone would look in on this church from Jews to pagans alike, looking in on the church uh, of Jesus Christ in Sardis and thought well of this church. They appeared to be alive. They appeared to have life. According to Jesus, if you move to Sardis, this is probably the church that you'd consider pressing into. They got a sweet band. They got lots of members. 
They have programs galore. They have a really cool building with a pallet wall and a cross on it. And their coffee is lights out. There are never grounds in it. And it's always the right amount of boldness. And yet Jesus says, I see a dead, lifeless corpse when I look at this church. Sam Storms in his commentary says this. He says that a church could be widely known for its activity and influence all the while dead in the estimation of Christ is a frightening, sobering reality. Obviously, what impresses men does not necessarily impress God. Now, let me pose a question. How do you get categorized as dead? I mean, you got to do some things really wrong, right? How do you get categorized as a lifeless church? That's strong language. None of the other churches that Jesus addresses get categorized that way. So what was different about this church? Well, I think the answer lies in that distinction between reputation and reality. Because if you look at the other churches, they didn't get it all right. But the stuff that they did get right that they were doing in the name of Christ, they were sold out to, right? So they were committed with authenticity to the few things that they were getting right, although they did fail at some other things. And yet, here in Sardis, there was a lack of authenticity in all things across the board so that the external didn't match the internal that it appears as though all is well. You can imagine these guys getting their letter, right? They've, they've heard that uh, the Apostle John has sent this letter uh, throughout the course of Asia Minor to these various cities, and they've heard about the letter reaching other places, and they're probably thinking, oh, okay, uh, I think Jesus is going to commend us on these things, and they make their list, and he's probably going to rebuke us on these, but that list is probably very small for them because everyone's saying they're great, they're doing great things in the community, and so they're just waiting for their letter to come. And they receive it, and rather than a written pat on the back, Jesus says, I see a church in which the external doesn't match the internal, and that's my dictionary definition of dead. John Stott says in his commentary, Sardis may have been the first church in the history of Christianity to have been characterized by nominal Christianity, Christianity in name alone. Its members belonged to Christ in name, but not in heart. By repute, they were alive. In reality, they were dead. He goes on to say, reality then is another essential mark of a true church. A church should have not only a reputation of being alive, but the life itself. Now it's starting to make sense as to why Jesus would describe himself as one who has the fullness of the Holy Spirit and the light of life, right? That he's speaking to a spiritless corpse in Sardis who refers to herself as the church. Now, that's corporately, okay? We, we can talk about that and how people view Crosspoint Peachtree City from the outside looking in. Um, they're probably not going, wow, you guys have programs galore and just this grand infrastructure, right? We're only two years old. Uh, if, if we had gotten there, we probably train wrecked some things to make it happen that quickly. Um, and, and so people are not necessarily looking in. Maybe they do like the pallet wall. Maybe our coffee is decent. I don't know. But um, people are probably not looking in going, wow, you have 18,000 things going on that impress me. And so I want to be a part of what you're doing. It's probably not us as a church at this stage in our infancy, which brings us to the individual side of it, because that probably is more of a rep representation anyway of where we are um, as we look at this particular letter, that at an individual level, Jesus addresses this issue of the external not matching the internal on a number of occasions in his public ministry, right? Um, it's a recurring theme with the Pharisees. Uh, if anyone was stellar at, at outward uh, reformation, at uh, outward externalism and behavior modification to the neglect of the heart, it was the Pharisees, right? I'd encourage you to go back and read the Gospels if it's been a while since you've read them and just engage that and see the difference in the, the characters and the way that they're set up in the plot as the story advances. These guys obeyed all the rules, and then they made up new rules to obey so that they look even better in, in the public eye. They made sure that everyone knew that they obeyed all the rules as well so that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this. He says, you give to the needy for everyone to see. He says, you pray long prayers in the public square for everyone to hear. He says, you fast in such a way that you make sure that everyone knows you didn't eat that day just by the look on your face. That you're on a mission to develop a reputation for being godly. But Jesus sees right through the facade, just like he does with the church in Sardis. 
Listen to what Jesus says to the scribes and Pharisees if you move forward in Matthew's gospel. He goes on to say this to them. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. About a week and a half ago, we were on the back end of our groceries for the month, and so it was just kind of uh, you're foraging in the forest every time you open the pantry to try to find what you're going to eat that day. And, and I noticed uh, a, a bread bag where a loaf of bread had once existed, and it looked empty, and I thought, why in the world did my wife put an empty bag in there? That just makes me angry. And then I grabbed it and saw there's one piece left. Yes, the end piece. Nobody wants the end pieces in my family except me. So this is free game, toast for the morning. I'm good to go. And so I open up the bag and go to pull out the bread, and half of it is bluish green with, like, white growths coming off of it. I'm like, are you kidding me? So I went back and looked at the expiration date, and and we were still a good week and a half away from the bread going bad, according to the packaging. The packaging said, eat this bread, you'll be perfectly fine. Open up the bag, and Jamie's eating cereal that morning because the bread was dead and decaying and disgusting. That's the picture, oddly, that Jesus is painting here in Matthew chapter 23. He's saying, you guys have a good stamp externally that screams not expired. You you guys appear to have everything together on the outside. The bag is in good condition. But internally, there's decay. There's mold. There's rot. There's death. He goes on to say it in a different way in the next couple of verses of Matthew 23. He says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, Hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Most of us have been to a funeral at some point in our lives, and when you walk in, what's one of the first things that you see? What is the focal point? It's the beautiful, polished wooden casket with the the gold or silver fixtures that you look at and you go, wow, that's, that's amazing. Like, that's, that's well-polished and put together. And yet, inside of every casket, we know what? We know that there exists a lifeless body. And Jesus is saying, that's you, scribes and Pharisees. That when Jesus calls the Pharisees hypocrites, that word uh, in the Greek actually means pretenders, play actors, theater actors, that Jesus is saying you're playing house with God. You're, you're manifesting an external uh, visibility that uh, causes people to look at you and say righteous when internally you're not, that there's a two-facedness about you, that D.A. Carson says this. He says, how few of us live one life and live it in the open. We are tempted to wear a different mask and play a different role according to each occasion. This is not reality but play acting, which is the essence of hypocrisy. He goes on to say this, and I find this to be incredibly sobering. Put it up on the screen for you. He says, Some people weave round themselves such a tissue of lies that they can no longer tell which part of them is real and which is make-believe. Does anybody read that and go, I feel like I'm in bondage to that? In in the land where uh, everyone wears multiple layers, it's as if we have just a dozen spiritual coats on so that no one will see what's going on underneath. You have to peel back one layer after another, after another, after another to get down to the heart of who the real person is underneath. And at the end of the day, Jesus would say, that's incredibly enslaving. That's the essence of being enslaved to the divided self, enslaved to playing, uh, to, to the game of playing pretend with God and others. So let me ask this question. Is anybody in this room this morning tired of playing that game? Would anybody say, I think a step for me this morning might be just to to meet with someone and make myself known for the sake of experiencing gospel freedom. To just confess who the real me is and know that Jesus paid it all for that version of me so that I can actually walk not enslaved to this divided self where I have to be a different person with every crowd that I come into contact with. That game's not good for anyone. It's not good For the church, it's not good for non-Christians looking in on the church, and it's certainly not good for you and for me individually. That playing the game won't get you into heaven, and I would argue that it might get you cuts in line uh, to hell at the end of the day. That Spurgeon says it this way. He says, the man who is quite satisfied with the name of a Christian 
without the life of a Christian, will never see God or anything at all until his eyes are divinely open. That the church in Sardis was enslaved to hypocrisy's dominion. They were play acting. They were, they were dressing the part. They were wearing the mask, but the heart was completely absent from it all. So what about you this morning? I had to sit with these questions myself, by the way, all week long. Have you been freed from hypocrisy's dominion? Are your outward actions and words an accurate reflection of what's going on in your heart? In what ways are your outward actions and words a cover-up for what's in your heart? Those would be a few diagnostic questions this morning. That, that according to Jesus, playing the game of reputation management is dead Christianity. That for far too long, people have bought into this idea that the mission of the church is reputation management. And let me just say this as crystal clear as I can. You're more likely to meet a talking unicorn than you are to impress God with your reputation. But the reality of it is, is that you have no reputation, and neither do I. That Jesus is the only hope that you have for a reputation. That Jesus is your reputation if you're a Christian. That outside of Jesus, you and I are not impressive. Not one of us in this room. That our mission is to tell people, look at him. Isn't he glorious? That if we live in this world where we say, look at us, the church, and be impressed, we're just going to let people down over and over and over again. And we're going to send them down a path of behavior modification as they try to be like us rather than the Christ that we seek to imitate. That, that as the lead pastor of this church, let me say it this way, I try not to spend my time thinking through what will cause people to say, wow, what a great church. And rather, I try to spend much of my time thinking through what will cause people to say, wow, what a great savior. And then in light of that, they'll think that this is a great church because we point them to our king as we decrease so that he might, might increase. That's our hope as a church. That's my hope as one of your pastors. That for some, the belief really is, if you're not a Christian this morning, you're in this room, this might be the case for you. That if I clean up the outside of the cup, so to speak, my words and my actions, if I just modify my behavior, God will look upon me and love me. He'll look at me favorably. There becomes this idea of moral spring cleaning, so to speak. If I just clean up the baseboards of my life, God will be impressed with me finally. He will look upon me and smile. And the problem is the reality is that our hearts are not like a dusty baseboard. Our hearts are like that mold in your shower that you can scrub and scrub and scrub and scrub and you just can't seem to get it out. Spurgeon says it this way. He says, you might as well try to give a living heart to a marble statue by working upon the outside of it with a mallet and chisel. To make a sinner pure and hard is as great a miracle as if God were to make that marble statue live, breathe, and walk. That if you're not a Christian, the worst thing you could possibly do today is try to be one. It's the worst thing that you could possibly do. You can't make your sinful heart clean. And the more you try, the more you'll deceive yourself into thinking that you're in God's good graces. That, that you're in a good place with God when he looks upon you. The truth is you don't need to clean up your sinful heart. You need a heart transplant. That's what the Bible teaches, that you need God to give you a new heart. That if you're not a Christian this morning, what my cry to you would be, would be to put down the spiritual scrub brush. Stop trying and turn to Jesus who lived it perfectly for you. That the bad news is that you and I can't do it. It can't be done. But gospel doesn't mean bad news. It means good news. And the good news is that even though you and I can't do it, we look to Jesus who lived the life that we couldn't live. He died our death, the death that we deserve to die, that a trade took place where he took our sins upon himself and he gifted us his perfect righteousness, dying in our place as our substitute. And he rose, conquering sin and death. And we look to our risen king as we sing this morning, collectively as the church, believing that he is alive. And thus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he breathes life into our dead, lifeless souls so that we can sing with vigor and hope this morning. We don't just sing hollow words to a dead king. We sing words by the power of the Holy Spirit to a risen king. So where are you if you're not a Christian this morning in all of this? Do you buy that? Or are you going to leave this morning? Are you going to continue to try to scrub out the dirtiness in an effort to impress God? Christianity is not about hollow, outward, external reformation. Jesus didn't come ultimately to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. 
That's why he tells the church again in Sardis that he has the fullness of the Holy Spirit, that only the Holy Spirit can breathe life into dead, lifeless souls. That's why it's so difficult sometimes to stand up here and do this week in and week out because the reality is that my words only carry power when the Holy Spirit gets behind them. There's nothing I can do to save dead, lifeless souls in my own strength. And thus, there's a dependence upon the Spirit of God to work and to bring dead people to life and to awake slumbering Christians. That is the only hope that we have, is that the Holy Spirit will intervene. We all need that, not just non-Christians, us Christians as well. We need the Holy Spirit to breathe life into our slumbering souls. We're prone to wander. We're prone to get complacent. John Stott says this, he says, It is the Holy Spirit who can breathe life into our formal worship and who can animate our dead works until they pulsate with life. A stale church can be refreshed by him. A sleepy church can be awakened. A weak church can be strengthened. And a dead church can be made alive, Stott said. I keep thinking, every single week, I come upon the passage and I go, that's us. Like every single week, I keep thinking that the week before it, well, I thought that was us, but this one's really us over and over and over again. And so as I say this, it might sound foolish in light of what I just shared, but I really, I don't know that we're going to encounter another letter throughout the course of this series that speaks to us more than this particular letter speaks to us in terms of the danger that we face. Think about it this way. Sardis, as I said before, in unpacking the background of this city, was wealth meeting religion. What do you think of when you think of Peachtree City? Wealth meeting religion. Wealth meeting moralism. Wealth meeting the land of cultural Christianity. If ever you and I should be listening, it's right now. Who's the real you when the well-manicured lawn gets stripped away? Who's the real you when the garage door comes up and people can actually see into your home? Who's the real you when the external visible forms of public godliness are stripped away for all the world to see? Or another way I could ask it is when it's just you and God, who are you? That is a sobering question to sit with. When it's just you alone with God, who are you? Because that question gets to the heart of reality, not to reputation. And that, that is the, the, the sense in which God looks and he goes, that's what I deem to be true. Not what you profess before other people, what you lay out in the community for all to see, but who you are when everything's stripped away and it's just you and me. That's the real you, God would say. That 1 Samuel 16, 7 says it this way, The Lord uh, sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And So Jesus throws out some words of caution. He says in verse 2, Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. That the first act of response is to literally wake up, which again, the Holy Spirit can empower to happen. That that the first course of action is to to look at your life and assess in such a way that you go, my eyes need to be be open. That um, those who are good at checking boxes are, are the least likely to say, I need to wake up. Right? Typically, Uh, A problem in our context is that people sit in a room and they go, yeah, man, I know about 18 people in the room that need to hear this one right now and fail to look inwardly at the reality of our own hearts. We do this, right? We're the worst at acknowledging that we're the ones who need the wake-up call, that the Pharisees thought they were the ones with open eyes looking around at the world around them saying, you guys need to open your eyes and be like us. That's how religious externalists operate. They check their boxes and then look down their nose at everyone else who's failing to check them in the way that they are. There's a call to realize that you're not impenetrable, you might say, that that if you go back to the history of this city, it's crazy. So during the reign of uh, Cyrus, the king of Persia, this city was considered to be the impenetrable force fortress, you might say. And so behind the city, up on a mountain, coming out from the mountain was a rock pier that it was impossible to climb the cliffs of to get to the top of. And on top of that pier sat the fortress of the city in which all of the soldiers overlooked that and protected the city from up high. It it was the perfect setup so that you couldn't penetrate the infrastructure of the city and attack it. 
And yet, according to uh, the Greek historian Herodotus, we're told that Cyrus came in. He said, this is the little five of Asia Minor. we got to conquer this city in order to move on and conquer other cities. And so he told his soldiers, if you'll figure out a way to scale those unscalable cliffs, there will be a reward for you. And so one of his guys looked upon the cliffs and just started observing. And it just so happened that one of the soldiers on top of uh, the fortress, looking down, lost his helmet. And proceeded to then climb down the sides of the cliff by way of a perfect path that allowed him to do so without endangering his life. And then he climbed back up. All the while, this particular Persian soldier was watching uh, the, the particular path that he was taking all the way down, memorizing it. So that later that night, he took a true, uh, set of troops with him and they climbed up that exact path and made their way to the top of the fortress. And when they got to the top, we're told that there were no soldiers who were actually even sitting at their post because that's how impenetrable they thought their city was. And that didn't happen just during the reign of uh, Cyrus, the king of Persia. It happened a second time under the reign of Antiochus the Great. That This city didn't learn their lesson the first time, and it happened a second time. There's a lesson in that story for us. That when we think we're least in danger of spiritual attack, that's when we're most in danger. That when we think we're most impenetrable, that's when we're most penetrable as the church, as Christians. That when we think we don't need the wake-up call, that's when we do. So the question for us this morning is, where do we need to wake up? Where do we need to assess that there's lifelessness, that there are dead cells in our Christianity, you might say? Jesus says, open your eyes. Stop assessing reputation the way everyone looks at you and the way they see you and start assessing reality, what's really going on under the surface. And Jesus goes on to unpack what Waking up looks like in verse 3. He says, remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. That Jesus actually clues us in on what waking up looks like. And, And this is empowered, again, by the Holy Spirit. But he says this. He says, first, remember what you received and heard. That this word remember is a present imperative in the Greek which simply means it's a continuous action, that Jesus is basically saying, keep remembering, don't forget, keep on remembering, remind yourself over and over and over again. What is he calling them to remember? What is he calling us to remember this morning? What is it that they received and heard? I think this one is a no-brainer. I think the answer is the gospel. And so if you read the New Testament, you hear the language of, of people hearing the gospel and believing, and you also see the language of people receiving the gospel. If you look at 1 Corinthians 15, one of the earliest creeds for Christianity, this is pre-Apostles' Creed, pre-Nicene Creed, this is the Apostle Paul himself. He says this in 1 Corinthians 15. Many of you have heard this passage before. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, Christians in the church, we need to be reminded of something. He says, of the gospel I preach to you, which you received, Paul says, in which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you. He goes on to say, For I delivered to you as of first importance that which I received. And he goes on to unpack it, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised from the dead in accordance with the Scriptures, that Paul says, I received the good news of the person and work of Jesus. Now I'm passing it on to you. You've received it. Now stand firm in it and remind yourself often of it. That the first piece of waking up is remembering the gospel. And what that means is that the gospel is not the 101 class of the church. That you, you don't understand the gospel and then move on to bigger and better things as you abandon the gospel. That's, that's not how the gospel works. Paul says, Christians in Rome, let me remind you of that which you're prone to think is a 101 class for you. That the Christian life is preaching the gospel to yourself and others over and over and over again. That no one talks to you more than you, I would say. At the end of the day, whether you're weird like me and you do that out loud sometimes when you're in your car or you just do it silently under your breath, we're constantly telling ourselves things about us. Jesus says you need to be reminding yourself often of who he is and what he's done for you. If that doesn't make any sense to you, preaching the gospel to yourself, please stay for August. We're going to unpack that, I think, really well as we talk about some uh, pieces of DNA for us as a church for the month of August. Secondly, Jesus says, along with remembering, waking up involves keeping. And that doesn't mean keeping in a sense of obeying, but rather it means keeping in a sense of guarding, in a sense of protecting. And again, this is a continuous action in the original language that we need to keep guarding the gospel. 
Not just remember it, but guard it. What does that mean? It means knowing the particular ways that, that you're prone to abandon the gospel. And so you might look at it from the lens of religion and irreligion. Maybe you're a person who, if you're going to abandon the gospel, it's going to be for a run at paganism for a season, a run at licentious sin, just to say, Jesus died for it, so I'm just going to do whatever I want to do. Maybe that's where you're prone to wander. Maybe you're prone to wander in the direction of the Pharisees, in the direction of the ditch of religion. Maybe when you wander away from the gospel, maybe it it looks like you creating and establishing rules on top of rules and looking at yourself constantly to see what you've done or haven't done rather than looking at what Christ has done. Maybe that's what it looks like for you to abandon the gospel rather than to guard it, rather than to keep it. Maybe it's from the angle of functional saviors. Maybe the issue is what, what do you trust in when you're not trusting in Christ? Whether it be, and usually these are good things that we make ultimate God things and thus they become problematic. Is it, is it money? Is it, is it spouse and kids? Is it job? What, what does that look like for you when you abandon Christ in terms of your, your ultimate source of hope? What are you trusting in at that point? That'll help you if you can answer that question to keep to guard the gospel in your life. Maybe it's false teaching. Maybe, maybe it's a, a doctrinal element for you that if you're going to abandon, abandon the gospel, maybe you're going to be the person going back to last week that does so because the culture says this, and the culture is the dog that wags the tail of truth for you. Or maybe it's personal experience that dictates how you interpret the Bible rather than taking the Bible to interpret your personal experience. What does that look like for you uh, if you were going to abandon the gospel? If you know the answer to that question, then you know where uh, the, the holes in the armor exist, for lack of better terms, so that you can guard the gospel in your life. But then lastly, it's not just remembering and preaching the gospel to yourself. It's not just guarding the gospel, but it's repenting. That this is the one word that's not a continuous action in the original language. That this is a definitive thing that Jesus is saying needs to happen. That he's saying definitively stop play acting. Definitively stop playing the game of reputation management. That there's got to be a a distinct turn here where you take off the mask and say, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm going to risk being known. By God and his people, that waking up involves preaching the gospel to ourselves, guarding ourselves from our own abandonment of the gospel, and repenting of playing the game of Christianity. And Jesus says, if you don't do that, I'm going to come, and I'm going to come against you. And this is not the language of the second coming, because he says, if you, if you actually respond and repent, I won't come. So th- this is more so the language of, if you don't take the mask off, I'll take it off for you. That external reputation that you're trusting in, I'll expose the dead bones underneath that all. And it can happen at any time, Jesus says. That he has the power to expose cultural, external religion in our Bible Belt subculture. And he can do it whenever he wants to, because he's Jesus. And the question for us would be, if he did so, would he be exposing you and I? And in what ways would, would he be doing that? Is there a consistency between the external and the internal heart, what God's doing? Jesus says, for those who will wake up and look at, at, my, at my cross, at who I am and what I've done for them, and who will stay on the gospel path, he says, I've got some really sweet promises for you. This is probably the best set of promises that I've seen thus far. They're all amazing, but this set is, is uniquely amazing based on who Jesus is speaking to. He says in verse 4, you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He says in verse 5, The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That The promises fit the context that in the land where people have dirtied their spiritual garments, so to speak, Jesus says that those in Christ will receive white garments, which is probably an amazing picture in the land of woolen garments as, a, as an industry, right? In the land where... Um, Woolen garments are being created left and right. You just see them being carried up the streets and and in their particular warehouses. They're being made, and it's just all around you. And you see this vision of purity in the midst of what Jesus is saying. There's great impurity at a heart level. He says, in the midst of those bearing a false reputation, a false name, that I will declare their true name in heaven. That Jesus speaks directly to these people and what they're going through. That for you and I, what does this look like? What are these promises in terms of how they affect us? Well, first of all, we have the promise of of intimacy. That Jesus says, you will walk with me. 
That going back to last week, the gospel isn't that you get God to give you that which you want more than God. The gospel is that you get God, period. That you get to walk with Jesus forever. You ever think about that, what that'll be like? Like you will get to ask Jesus every question you've ever had about the universe, about the way he designed things, about what it was like to to spin stars into existence just by speaking them. You'll get to ask him what it was like to, what was it like to walk planet earth as eternal God taking on human flesh? Like I could go on for hours just talking about all the crazy things that I want to sit down and have a picnic with Jesus to talk to him about, and we'll have an eternity to do that. And I think there's something sweet in envisioning that for yourself, that um, you actually become more good today by, by envisioning the eternal, what will be. That's why we have these promises, that you can enjoy spending time with Jesus forever. Secondly, we have the promise of purity and victory. We get that language in um, where Jesus says you will be clothed in white, that if you're a person who struggles with shame, there will be no shame in heaven. Whether it be the shame of your own sins that you've committed or the ways that you've been sinned against horrifically by others, heaven will be a place in which there will be no shame. That is amazing that Jesus died to make you pure. He died to make you clean. And you may not feel that way today, but you've been declared pure and clean because Christ is for you. And there will be a day that will come when all of that will make more sense to you and feel more real than even it does today, maybe. And not only that, the language of white clothing communicates not just purity, but victory, that Jesus is going to win. If you read forward, I've talked about this before in this series, Revelation 19 paints this sweet picture of Jesus and his angels coming back to wage war against Satan and his minions, and we get to be a part of that, and we're all going to be wearing white, which says that Jesus doesn't think we're going to lose, that the only blood that we're going to see is the blood of Jesus and the blood of his enemies. That's amazing that you and I are on the winning side, Jesus says. That's one of the promises. Thirdly, we have the promise of certainty, that your name will never be blotted out of the book of life, that those in Christ can be certain that there will never come a day in which heaven will become hell, that those in Christ belong to Christ, that their names are inked in pen, bought with his blood. That's what we mean when we sing the lyrics of that great hymn before the throne of God above, which says this, my name is graven on his hand, My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue could bid me thence depart. That he's done everything necessary to secure my redemption and your redemption, which is why he said it is finished when he completed the work. Lastly, along with the promise of intimacy, the promise of purity and victory, and the promise of certainty, we have the promise of identity that you can read the Bible and, and see in it the truth that you belong to God, right? We can see that, that our identity is rooted in Jesus. Just read any letter that Paul wrote. But there's something uniquely altogether different to hear Jesus say it with his own lips. And he says in verse 5, I'll say it with my own lips, that one day Jesus will say, he's mine, Jamie's mine, he belongs to me. That he knows you, that you're not an embarrassment to Jesus. He's not ashamed of you if you're a Christian in this room this morning. I love the way Sam Storms paints this scene of that day that's described here in this morning's passage. I'm not going to put it up on the screen. It's a little lengthy to do so, but just listen to this. He says this, Envision the scene. You are standing in the blazing presence of the immeasurable and unfathomable God. An all-consuming fire, the God of infinite and unending glory, the God of unsearchable and incomparable righteousness. You got that in your mind? I don't. God's too big. It's hard, right? He goes on to say, small, frail, weak as you are, Jesus takes hold of your hand and leads you before his Father and beneath the penetrating gaze of myriads of angels. The God the Father is waiting on you. And there are thousands upon thousands of angels surrounding that throne that that are just radiating in the blinding light of the glory of God. And Jesus takes you by the hand and says, let's go. Let's go talk to my father. And he goes on and he says this. Then he proudly and happily and joyfully and confidently declares, and you put your name in this blank, I'm putting mine in there right now. Father, Jamie is mine. 
I am his. He is clothed in white. I've paid his debt. I've suffered his penalty. He is clean. He is pure. He is in me, and I am in him. He is righteous. That there's coming a day when Jesus is going to take you by the hand and declare all of that before the Father. Not because you are, but because he is for you, and you've trusted in him in faith. In a moment, we're going to take communion And we do so here by taking the bread and and dipping it in the cup, the bread representing the broken body of Jesus, the cup representing his shed blood. If you're a Christian, this meal is for you. We do this as a collective declaration of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. If you are a Christian, I'll leave you with these questions to sit with as you prepare to come and take communion this morning. And hopefully you'll sit with these even throughout the week this week. Question number one, is the Holy Spirit breathing life into your Christianity? Or is your Christianity lifeless? Number two, are you more interested in heart transformation or reputation management? Those are two very different things. Number three, who is the real you? Do you even know or have you been wearing so many masks that you can't tell the difference between reality and make-believe? And again, maybe this is, this is the time that you grab someone else in the church and say, I, I just need to remove the layers, the mask. I need, I need to be known. Uh, that, that'll help me to better experience the gospel in, in knowing that I'm known by God and loved in Christ if I can bring someone else into that. Are you play acting? Are your outward actions and words an accurate reflection of who you are internally at a heart level? Are you preaching the gospel to yourself? Do you, does that language even make sense? Again, if it doesn't, stick around Uh, One, I'd love to grab coffee with you before August because that's just lost time. But if that doesn't happen, come in August and hear what it means to preach the gospel to yourself, what we mean when we even use that language. And then lastly, are you on guard against yourself when it comes to abandoning the gospel? Do you know what it looks like when you're not trusting in Christ, those things that you turn to, so that you can uh, establish some armor, so to speak, by the power of the Holy Spirit to fight and wage war against sin? And, and abandonment when it comes to the gospel. If you're not a Christian, during this time that, that we as Christians come and take communion, I would just ask you to sit with these simple questions. Um, will you set aside the pursuit of hollow external reformation? Like, will you put down the scrub brush and will you turn to Jesus and trust in him to make you clean? If you want to talk about what in the world that means, I'd love to hear where you are on this path if you're not a Christian whether you even buy into that, whether you're even holding a scrub brush or whether it's something completely different in terms of your hostility toward God or your uh, questioning of the gospel. But I do believe that, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you're here for a reason if you're not a Christian. And so let's press into that. Let's talk about that and let's get down to the heart of what's going on in your life personally. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.